0: Welcome to Investing by the Books podcast by RedEye. I'm Eddie Pangen, your host. And with me in the studio, I have Niklas Säv-Oas. Today, we are excited to get the first podcast episode going. And today, we will talk with Sean Eddings, who wrote two books on intelligent fanatics together with Ian Castle. From the framework of RedEye quality rating, what will the episode focus on today, Niklas?
1: So the quality rating covers business, people, and financials. And this one is about people, the the management and the owners.
0: Yeah, and we can really hear that from the subtitle of the first book, How Great Leaders Build Sustainable Companies. And the second title is Standing on the Shoulders of Giants, also a great concept. Uh, What are your thoughts on the books?
1: I mean, first of all, the books, they're really easy to read. Uh, Each chapter covers one of the fanatics and it covers their their background, why they chose to to start a business or join the business and I mean what they did and also of course the value creation during their terms which is incredible in all cases.
0: Yeah that's some insane returns over there and the second book is follows the same pattern with those case studies of intelligent fanatics. Uh, What I liked with with that one was that they also contrast the leaders and their organizations against some competitors and they also bring up mistakes and flaws among the intelligent fanatics to yeah, to give some more nuances and to show that they are also also human. Do you have some other key takeaways or stories?
1: I mean, one key takeaway for for me, and I think will will be for, for many that chose that to read the book is that I mean most of the or many of the fanatics really focused on industries that are really, really competitive and they still manage to carve out an edge, which is quite rare. Uh, and i I think one of the first filter that that many investors have is is uh, business quality and and the industry and if you if you look at a, a cyclical industry as as steel for example, where Ken Iverson, which is one of the fanatics operated in you would probably just um i mean put it in the in the um, too hard pile immediately filter it away.
0: Yeah, and uh, some might say that, okay, there's always a successful example somewhere. These are just a survivorship bias that these businesses thrived. But uh, yeah, why, why did they succeed for decades and decades and kept their dominance? There must be something to that concept uh, that kept them going. And one thing is really about learning not only from failure, but pr- focus on the success part. So that is something we will do today in the first episode of Investing by the Books podcast. We will focus on Intelligent Fanatic Model, the blueprint for building dominant, sustainable businesses. And here comes
1: the interview with Sean Eddings. Welcome, Sean. We're so happy to have you on the podcast. Um, We actually interviewed you two times before in 2016 and 2017 for Investing by the Books. Uh Uh-huh. And it was right after you released uh, your books, uh, where we covered, of course, the content and why you decided to write the books. What has happened since?
2: Uh, A lot. Well, first of all, thanks, you guys, for having me on the the podcast. But so since 2016, I guess a lot has uh, happened with me. Uh, Ian Castle and I, we developed uh, another book after the first one. Uh, and actually another one after that, based on like Indian Intelligent Fanatics, uh, we built like a, a community and over time just kind of decided that, you know, that wasn't really our best uh, usage of our our time and, you know, providing value to other individuals. And so for me, I really wanted to take the Intelligent Fanatic principles and, you know, take all that study time and actually apply it in real life. Uh, and so instead of applying it as an investor looking for the next greatest business, um, I actually tried to take that information and put it into an entrepreneurial uh, endeavor. And so uh, it's probably about 2019, I was getting a little uh, desperate in terms of you know trying to seek out cash flow avenues. And I was just looking around for opportunities, and my wife uh, had recently become a real estate agent in our area. Uh, and so I, you know, I, I kind of have like a technical, you know, background. I've always been really interested in like IT and tech. Uh, ever since I was like two, I can remember like sleeping on a keyboard, uh, playing games. Uh, but so my wife you know, is operating or was operating in a really competitive real estate market. So I said, okay, well, I'm going to try to give her an edge. How can I give that to her? So I saw that nobody in the area was providing really a uh, business-oriented real estate photography kind of service. So doing like, you know, high quality real estate photos, 3D tours, video, all that kind of stuff there was really no one-stop shop, uh, for that kind of service. You know, I, all the real estate agents were, you know, just pointing and clicking with their telephone, uh, phone, uh, you know, video or photos. And so I learned as, you know, much as I could about, you know, taking, you know, photography I had actually like no experience other than, you know, having a cell phone in my pocket, uh, so I went to YouTube, learned about drone uh, photography and, you know, getting a drone pilot license. I, you know, learned as much as I could about it. And the funny thing is, uh, studying intelligent fanatics, a lot of them came from different spheres or fields before they entered the one field that they really dominated. Uh, so for instance, if you look at Herb Kelleher of Southwest Airlines, he was a lawyer uh, before he, you know, really co-founded and built Southwest Airlines, uh, Saul Price was a lawyer uh, who built uh, FedMart, which turned into Price Club, which was pretty much the forerunner of Costco. Uh, there was, uh, you know, I, I could just, you know, continue going on and on and on with uh, more examples, but it, for somebody to really come into a, a field and think differently, you know, having that non-experience is actually very helpful. So for me, I, you know, I, I saw my non-experience of photography as actually a benefit. Uh, and also I, you know, was a musician for many years and I understand the artistic aspect of uh, any kind of art, you know, whether it be music, art or photography, a lot of those individuals, they like to do everything themselves. Uh, they are very, uh, how can I say, non-business-oriented. And so I, I knowing that as a musician, I knew that any kind of photographer in my area, you know, if they ever did want to compete against me eventually, they wouldn't want to compete w- with me because they're all non-business oriented. so I thought that was like a perfect place to uh, enter. And then, so I helped out my wife. Uh, she decided that it wasn't really for for her the real estate thing. But um, over you know a short period of time, I was able to gather you know the, the biggest uh, realtor in our area, and then you know via word of mouth, you know I've built up a huge clientele and in, in my market, and you know it's continually just grow, 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 and. You know, I'm again just trying to utilize everything that I've learned, and it's fun just to see how all of that effort and painstaking study, uh, you know, in something can actually be utilized in in real life. And it's you know preparing that, you know, sharpening that chisel for a couple years, and then eventually just going out and just tapping a, a tree and just seeing it fall down. It's all that preparation does definitely work out so that's pretty much my uh trajectory since i i last you know chatted with you guys so quite a different uh uh you know journey you know you you to think I, I would still be investing you know f- full-time all that kind of stuff but no it's just interesting to to keep my eyes open and then being able to utilize some of the things that i've learned
0: yeah it's definitely interesting to see how which paths you take in life and how things just come upon you coming back to a bit about how like you you started the fanat- com website and you had the membership network and everything and yep. now we can follow this journey with the, your new business experience on another site the com. can you yep. tell us a little bit about that
2: so if- Yep. I can definitely chat about that. And so, so dot you know, we had a bunch of content, you know, all the stuff that we were learning, uh, and just decided that, you know, just, to you know, really cut it off, uh, because of the maintenance and all that type of stuff. Um, but I've, I've just decided to, uh, kind of repopulate some of that content onto my own uh, blog and it's called The Woodshed. And the reason why I call it The Woodshed is because uh, as a jazz musician, you know, uh, that's what I was pretty much, you know, for the majority of my my life uh, before getting into investing in business. Uh, One of the sayings of any musician, especially jazz musician, is if you want to become a better player, you have to go to the woodshed and that just, Technically means somebody just goes in isolation and really takes their instrument and learns it, you know, studies as much as they can and really breaks down the essence of music and learns as much as they can from other great players and, you know, just technically works on what, quote unquote, the, their chops. That's That being their technique. And so, for me, I thought it was a perfect uh, name uh, for a couple reasons. Because uh, number one, I'm still, I think, in the woodshedding phase of my, you know, business and investing uh, career. And I, I think the whole concept of the Intelligent Fanatics project for myself was to woodshed. You know, trying to learn all the techniques from the great business and investing masters of the past. And, you know, just trying to prepare myself for any kind of opportunity that might come in the future. And of course, as I just told you, I've, you know, prepared myself for my current business opportunity uh, and also uh, prepared me to hold on to one of my investments that we'll probably chat about uh, in a little bit. And secondly, I thought The Woodshed was a great uh, name for my blog because I recently purchased a. Uh, an office that is actually a uh, a shed made out of wood and there's tons of wood interior in it uh, that's on my property and that's, you know, my physical woodshed where I come in to isolate myself when I'm not doing my real estate photography business uh, and doing shoots and, you know, learning, studying, and really trying to continually improve self-improve and you know, life and business investing and and such. I
1: I find it's great that you can, I mean, you can learn so much from these fanatics, not only for investments, but, but also, as you say, for, for the business itself. Um, and I wanted to touch a bit more on the, on the actual study of, of the fanatics. In the first book, you have a table where you summarize the key traits, um, that, that they have in common, um. And I, I think it's a great high-level description on, of how to find a great great leader. But at the same time, I mean, it's it's much more nuanced than than only only a yes no question. Um, I mean, yeah. Have your further research strength, strengthened strengthened the view that that those are the key traits? And I mean, considering that that there are nuance to it, have have you added something that you want to discuss?
2: Well, it's I I think it's uh for, for book form and you know trying to share information and understanding with other people. First first it's really difficult to share, you know, understanding with an un, another individual uh, just because, you know, I can say words and you know some things might stick and some things might not stick for the individual because they have totally different experience they have uh, different biases. They have just a totally different worldview. And so it's for, for a book, you know, it's, it's good to kind of simplify from the top, you know, some characteristics and traits, but I think over time, uh, especially with my music background, it's to build up a pattern recognition, a well-formed pattern recognition, uh, it's very, very hard to kind of elucidate to somebody else in word form and table form or what have you. And I think uh, there is so much I've learned since, you know, actually writing the book in, say, like 2015, and the next one, and then so forth. Uh, it's just, there's just so much of a mosaic, I would say, that uh, there's so many pieces that I've been able to take from you know, everybody I've pretty much read about and learned and to try to form uh, that picture, that mosaic in my mind, you know, and it's in what I can visually see in my head is like a beautiful, think of it like a mosaic painting of what a great business is. And for me to, you know, say in words, it's very difficult. And I think each one of those tiny detailed pieces are all very important for the overall pitcher. Um, you know, and it comes down to so the one reason that I've kind of shied away and moved away from like just specifically intelligent fanatics is because that is looking at the leader as the end all be all. But that leader is extremely important, but it's what they build that I've really come to understand is so much, you know. An important part of a great business and so the great leader you know sets the tone of the business but it's the people they bring in and it's the culture that they're able to form that is so important and how they're able to execute uh, compared to other people in the industry and what type of value that they're able to provide to the customers And, you know, and so on. And that's really the value generation that they're able to uh, create is based on, you know, what the whole team is able to provide in value. And so that's why, you know, like looking at the leader is extremely important because if I want to become a leader, I have to be able to follow some of the things that they did correctly. And I think that the most important thing is that team, that whole kind of encompassing picture of a business that they're able to create. And so Tony Shea on you know who unfortunately passed away not too long ago who was the founder and CEO of Zappos, he had he thought of like a leader as more of a, a person who architects a greenhouse that sets the conditions to which the plants uh thrive. And I think that is a great metaphor uh, that uh, a leader, you know, such as myself now, that's one thing that I'm trying to start to really understand and actually put into practice um, because it's that team effort that if you can get the whole team working on the same page and going all in together, they're going to, you know, dominate, you know, no matter who comes by. And so you might have, you know, some other competitor who has, you know, is so talented, but they suck playing with, you know, their other team members, you know, they only, their, their ceiling of, of ability is going to be totally capped and so much less than, you know, a team of maybe moderate players all working together in unison, you know, they're, they're, they not only will be able to provide better value in the short term, over time, a much longer period of time, they'll be able to stick together. And it's a much more durable competitive advantage to have a team that's totally all in, you know, who might not be all the best themselves, but as the team, you know, they really leverage all of their talents together and create, create, you know, some insane, you know, phenomenal value.
0: We're really getting into the culture part, which is one of the most important parts of a uh, business as you say um, if we look at the ownership and the difference and the relationship between culture and ownership and how do you define this quality culture, could you elaborate a little bit on that
2: so one one thing a lot of investors and you know myself when I was you know really putting a lot of time uh, into investing they you know, we, we usually would look at, you know, a company who has a f- founder, you know, founder-led, who has a lot of their uh, equity or net net worth tied to the business, uh, you know, and if they own 50%, you know, if they have control, you know, you've, even better, right? That's one of the um, you know, things that investors like to look for, you know, somebody with a lot of their their own uh equity into a business because you know it's better for a cook to eat more of their own cooking Uh, so i've over time have come to realize that that's not even really a good uh, indicator because a lot of micro cap small companies you know which was where i was investing and continue to invest a lot of companies have those and if if i look back even further a lot of small businesses in America, and I'm sure in where you guys are located, and anywhere in Europe, and you know wherever, wherever in the world, you know small business owners they own hundred percent of their business, and that doesn't really tell anybody anything. That just tells you that they're you know they own a business, uh, but it's not really conducive to saying they're going to be the next greatest business in the world, uh, and so I think the ownership kind of part of a leader, you know, it's good to have somebody who has, you know, a ton of their net, net worth tied to their business. Um, but I think there's so much more and kind of going back against that mosaic idea. Okay, that's one little teeny tiny blip on that painting. But, you know, what? what's the rest of that painting look like? What other details? Now, the other details would be you know, just what, what type of personality the individual is? Are they an actual, you know, like bona fide leader type? And so are, are they somebody who uh, really likes to be around people and really trying to motivate and inspire them? And how do they do it? You know, are, are they going around uh, trying to cut other people down? Or are they trying to build other people up? And I think if you can get out there and speak with management you know, you'll, you'll be able to, uh, you know, first time meeting somebody, you might be able to get a little bit of an idea of, you know, who, who they might be. But it's over time you're able to build that trust. But I think one of the best things that has helped me, and I think it's more of a universal, uh, I wouldn't say per- perfect, you know, kind of idea or... uh Thing to go go by, but I think it's one of the things that human beings are attuned to as social beings is trying to seek out people similar to them, and so I think that the more you embody uh, the great leader yourself, uh, the more you you're a trustworthy individual, the more that you embody uh, you know integrity. The more that you embody uh, any kind of characteristic that you're looking for, and you just literally go out and look for people like you. And I think that's just a natural inclination of human individuals is to literally seek people that with similar likes, interests, and who, who have uh, you know commonalities. And so I, I've given some... Uh, different examples that being say like Warren Buffett and a lot of people say, well, he's got a great ability to sniff out people who have high integrity, who have uh, ability to lead people in a great decentralized manner. Well, it's, if you look at Warren Buffett himself, he embodies it and he just literally goes out there and finds people like him. Uh, So an example would be like a G chain. So who runs like the insurance operation, all that type of stuff, Berkshire Hathaway? So, Warren finds a Jeep when he's younger, you know, less molded, uh, but has potential. Uh, and I think if you look at Buffett, he's just literally finding somebody like himself. And then each night, he's able to, you know, chat with him on the phone and then feed him all this information to make him a better leader. And then it's so, it's, I think it's just literally embody what you want to be and so for my example i try to you know literally become an intelligent fanatic myself by learning about all these great business leaders of the past uh and i think i try to embody all of their principles of integrity of you know delivering more than you say you will uh, and you know just providing as much value as i can to Myself, my family, you know, and anybody who comes into contact with me. Uh, and I literally just look for somebody like me. Uh, and that's been extremely helpful uh, in terms of, you know, finding business operators early on in their uh, life and then just holding on and then also just becoming that leader myself.
1: So we, we touched upon it in the beginning and, and we mentioned Expel. So maybe you can just discuss the experience you had with expel and, and meeting management there and and i mean how you gained more confidence in in the stock
2: uh so i first came across the company you know, disclosure i still own shares uh, not as much as i used to but uh, i can talk about that later but anyway uh so i initially invested in it 2014 uh, of course i became a part of micro cap club uh, led by uh, Ian Castle and Mike Schellinger. Uh, and there is where I actually you know saw the company you know it was posted on there in what two thousand thirteen sometime by Paul Andriola who's a great investor himself uh, and it was posted at like thirty cents uh, a share so many moons ago and so there's a lot of chatter on Microcap Club that this is a, you know, great company. There's a lot of individuals on the form that were doing some great due diligence. So they're getting out there meeting with uh expel installers, you know, like suppliers and you know there's people, you know I'm sure who had a bunch of money in it back then and had, you know, made tons of money cuz you know Expel in 2011 10 Share price was you know one two three four five cents, and you know by the time it's thirty cents, they've been doing pretty well. Uh, So it was pretty popular on Microcap Club. And I initially saw and I'm like, what the heck is it? This it's a car car condom company. You know, you put sticky plastic on cars, and it's like, what's what's the value in that? And it's I couldn't understand it, Uh, but. Over time, I thought about it, and I looked at it, and I'm like, there's a lot of smart people looking at this company, you know, who's still, you know, it's t- still tiny, it was trading back then at, like, a $30 million uh, market cap. And it was doing revenues back in 2014 of roughly, you know, $28 million yearly revenue. And so I was just really intrigued and so I tried to dig in a little bit more. Uh, and I saw that the company didn't really have like an option plan. And so it's literally not, not even the CEO, of Ryan Pape. So I just, that really like hit a tone with me. And I had recently been studying uh, Walmart in its infancy, you know, Sam Walton. So I was just really intrigued to how the incentives were set up there and how. Walmart managers, new stores were were incentivized. And I just, you know, started thinking about it. So I'm like, okay, these guys are growing pretty well. And it seems like the penetration rate for uh, paint protection film, which was the, the main driver back then for automobiles, there is there is a market for, you know, low penetration, two to 3% worldwide of new cars sold. You know, there could be something here. Uh, And so I just dug into it a little bit more, uh, called installers, you know, leveraged a lot of my uh, network, which being like microcap club members. And so I initially bought in like July or something like that. And then over time, I think, so that's about 2014, I started to really uh, dig into, you know, studying other great leaders and you know at that time i hadn't started the intelligent fanatics project yet but it was definitely something i i've already been working on just studying great great businesses and so over time uh, i think i first met ryan pate ceo 2000 i think it was 15 uh, i can't can't remember i'm pretty sure because there was a no or 2014 there was a microcap club conference in detroit michigan and so i i met you know, all the other CEOs and met a lot of the interesting characters in the microcap cap land. Uh, and just like, I, I, I was, I, I've always been a very shy person. So it was, you know, me getting out of my comfort zone and which was good. Uh, but I've always been uh, turned off by slimy people and slimy. I mean, you know, they're, they're very salesy and they're, they're very, uh, just make me uncomfortable. Uh, you can tell like those, those type of people generally they're great at talking. They're great at, you know, trying to get you to do something, but I, I generally see through it. And again, I, I try to look for people just like me and I, I think, you know, hopefully I'm like, I'm a humble, you know, have high integrity and all that kind of stuff. So I'm looking for that kind of thing, you know, either actually mentally or just subconsciously. And so I saw a bunch of the CEOs there, and it's just like, oh God, you know, it's a bunch of slime balls here. And you know, of course, I was looking to forward to meeting Ryan Pape because I'm like, okay, this guy's, you know, the cheese. You know, he's he's cool guy. Everybody wants to meet him, uh, and you know, company's been doing well and all that type of stuff. And he just seemed like a straight shooter. He he wasn't even back then like gonna tell you, you know, the best thing or tell you what you want to hear. He's just going to tell you what, what the facts are and just, just move on. And that really resonated with me. And, you know, just the vision, like I, I could already start seeing, you know, form, you know, some of the vision that these guys had in terms of what they're trying to build, you know, what type of team that they're trying to build. And so of course, over the, over this time, I'm still studying, and trying to really internalize the great leader. But still, I, you know, I invested quite, quite a bit cash, uh, not cash, but just position of, uh, my portfolio and other people's portfolios that I was managing like 10% or something. I, <clears throat> cause I thought I had some gumption that this, this thing's going to be, you know, an interesting company. I never knew it was going to be as good as it has. Um, but <clears throat> so met, met them there. i still like to this day i've never been to the expel headquarters and i yeah i've been to a couple of different companies that i've invested in but i i can even kind of tell um from afar you know just what type of business that's being uh created what type of teams created because of course you know in calls with some of the uh, employees at like expel, like, over you know, in the next couple months after having that first meeting with, uh, you know, management of expel, you know, it, just trying to figure out exactly what their incentive structure was in terms of sales. And, you know, how did that compare with other competitors? And I just found that, you know, the way that they incentivize salespeople, you know, it's very low base pay and it's lots of upside if, as long as you execute. And of course that, you know, what does that sound like? Well, to me, I'd been reading about like Nucor, Nucor Steel with Ken Iverson and what did Ken Iverson do? He he set up the incentive structure where the employees would have a low base pay and a lot of upside as long as they're executing. And not only that, in terms of financial incentives, these guys are incentivized to think like owners and, as I learned more about like X-Ball's like installers, so owned installers, and they'd have like an incentive structure that was making the installers think like an owner. That being, you know, like they have their own kind of control over their little P&L of, you know, create, you know, installing film and taking inventory of the film. And then that was, okay, it's like, whoa, okay. So the, these guys have really thought out one of the most powerful uh, levers in, in in business you know just incentivizing everybody to think like an owner. So going back to the question before of you're like okay well looking at a leader with who's incentivized to think like an owner well that's you know fine and dandy most owners or leaders they're hopefully gonna think like an owner but now if you can get everybody within the organization, think like an owner holy shit you can get some pretty cool results because not only do you have just a leader who thinks like an owner you have everybody who's working not only against each other you know because you know whatever incentive to you know make me the best it's how can we all think like an owner and work as a team to get better results together Uh, and you only go as far as you can alone, but you go way farther together. So that was another kind of thing that I learned about that really helped build my conviction. Uh, another time that I met management, uh, well, it's of course, there's like the lawsuit that happened on the court. I was. Again, fortunate to be involved in the Microcap Club where there's individuals way smarter than me uh, who who know like patent law and that type of stuff that helped uh, form an, a good idea of how this company could uh, get through this uh, potential problem. But then again, it's like I studied Southwest Airlines. Herb Kelleher was a lawyer, and like when. F- Southwest began in 1970, 1971, whatever it was. They didn't fly for the first, what, four or five years because competitors like Braniff International Airlines, they were stopping, preventing Southwest from actually flying because they were saying, you know, like, this law, this regulation, like, you can't, you guys can't fly. And so Herb Kelliker had to work his butt off to really get that company just literally off the ground and to start. And so I I was familiar, you know, there's great companies that can start from these really, you know, rocky uh, trouble, you know, litigious uh, situations. Or I just remember hearing about like uh, Henry Ford and like they, they were having legal issues at the beginning and it's like they were able to overcome it and so it's usually the the great so i'm starting to understand okay well these great companies they'll have uh some rocky patches in the beginning but it's usually their their ability you know their great culture and great leadership that's able to navigate you know whatever conflict that come arises you know as long as it's not like the biggest conflict ever but they're usually it's in those conflicts they see opportunity to show demonstrate to their people that they're you know the whole team is very valuable uh and the, none of these conflicts can really stop them they're just more probably motivating um and so you know long story short you know like i've met managed max bell management again and i remember uh talking with with ryan and He's like, well, I asked him like, what's kind of your, the company that you look to in terms of what you kind of want to build. He's like Amazon. He's like, there's next day shipping. And it's that instant gratification that really uh, gets, you know, people wanting to get into prime uh, membership and all that type of stuff. So that's been huge for Amazon. And so the getting close to the customer concept for Ryan was huge and i i really saw that as um, so expel sells to installers so it's not a b to c comp- company so business to consumer it's a b to b so they're s- selling a necessary product for an installer to install onto their customers um, automobiles and now pretty much whatever uh, and so for a business to operate of course, you you need film or an installer business, so they need a precious resource to operate, and if they don't aren't able to get that supply quick, and you know in a pinch in some cir- circumstances, that can be a huge boon or not boon but uh, a bad thing for their business, and so just having that inventory and having that relationship that closer to customer relationship, having a lot more inventory than they probably really need, and getting it closer to the customer really helps with uh, that customer relationship. And, you know, because if competitor, it takes them a week to get the supply to them where Expo can get it to them in a day, boom, that's going to be a huge competitive advantage. So that was another thing that really helped me build uh, conviction into the, the company.
0: All right. Can I bre- break in with a question? Yeah, uh, of course. Like when you started looking at the company and you started investing and how, how much were you looking at the financials and, and the valuation? How were you thinking in terms of that? Because we at Redeye we usually say that financial is a lagging indicator of a company quality.
2: Yeah, exactly. So it's it's lagging, especially with the smaller companies that are, you know, not quite at their uh, growth inflection And Expel actually had, you know, five, six years. Okay, let's see, five years or so, four or five years of growth that was pretty f- fantastic. Uh, back then, it was trading at, you know, multiples of revenue of, you know, one, one or yeah, at most two two times revenues. So, and in terms of the net profit, that wasn't as high and there was uh profit growth over that five year or so period. Uh, so you could see that there was some financial uh, diligence, you know, they're not just spending all their money that they come in, but they're actually pretty prudent in terms of growing the business uh, and in terms of the return on investment, you know, or the ROIC, you know, this this is a company that's not only able to invest into new opportunities, but to do it in a very, you know, well manner. So if it's getting a ROIC of like over twenty percent, still growing at, you know, at that time, like over fifty percent per year, and it's still growing pretty pretty well. Uh, so those were some of the lagging indicators that was giving me uh, you know, a little confidence that this could and of course it still had a long runway in terms of potential avenues to, to grow. But I didn't spend too much time on, uh, you know, looking at the valuation. Like I said, it, was, it wasn't it was ridiculously expensive. It wasn't a SaaS business trading at 10 times revenues or anything like that, you know, and it was trading, can't remember the exact number on profits, but it, was, it wasn't was trading for any ridiculous, you know, PE, um, you know, fit, maybe 40 or 50 times uh, at, you know, a, at some point in 2015 when it was a little bit high uh but i kind of gave like a little financial model back in 2014 when i initially did my write-up on seeking alpha whereby i looked more at the potential size of the company and the potential you know financial metrics of what it could be uh in say to 2021 and of course i i was way off uh Cause it's 2021 now and I can see uh, like revenues. I was probably higher, but in terms of like the profits, I was, you know, halfway decent, uh, you know, the growth, the trajectory was pretty, pretty close. Uh, and then what I tried to do is just uh net present value that number and then base, you know, whatever I had a pretty high hur- hurdle rate uh, attached to it. So I think I had like 25. So if I wanted to get a 25% return on, you know, my whatever numbers that i put on uh you know it it was i think it was like six or something like that and it was trading back then at like two okay so i'm like okay well i can be pretty wrong and still have a halfway decent outcome and so and then over time as things have progressed i've just you know added to it because conviction has increased uh you know and over time so initial was i think like 175 lowest i think i bought was a little under one and uh, i think my overall i think the highest i've paid you know like, like 20 uh so like my overall cost average is like 330 or something like that so i i put it quite a bit at, at the beginning and you know like in 2017-18 i put a huge chunk in so that kind of gives you an idea of how i yeah it's I think valuation is definitely leading indicator, and especially it's not a great thing to look at um, when when you're just putting a multiple on a small, growing, fastly growing company.
0: Yeah, but the the stock has not been uh, really; it's been skyrocketing, but it's not a straight line. You had major drawdowns during that time, as you as you showed on uh, on woodshed.
2: Yeah. Yeah. So it's, you know, there was a time when it went from three-ish all the way down to 66 cents. So we're, we're talking, you know, at t- at times it was down 80% from the high. Uh, so that did not feel good. And especially, you know, I was investing, you know, some, some friends' money, it's uh, an ind- individual who's, you know, c- kind of become a friend, uh, much older than I am, and just trying to just talk to them, you know, like, during that period it's it's, it's difficult it's very difficult and they just look at you like are you like the stupidest person in the world Uh, it's it's a very and like my, my friend one friend that i you know put a huge chunk in and it's like i'm trying to talk with him and it's he i can just tell it's like thinking like you're stupid like why why have you lost me this much and i'm just like okay I haven't lost you the money. Number one, because I haven't sold it. Number two, you know, and I tried to make it as simple as possible. You know, like this is just kind of a temporary, you know, measure. You know, like uh, big companies coming in, throwing a lawsuit that's pretty uh, uh, worthless. And I think this is, you know, great, great team. You know, still large runway. You know, just please have confidence in me. But I think just trying to convince somebody else to have confidence in something when you still just question yourself. And that, there were so many times I questioned myself.
0: Yeah. It's really challenging too. And so many biases are at play there. Oh yeah. Like, like, oh, which yeah. would you say that, which are your most common biases when you're investing and, and how do you, how do you deal with them? Like practically, can you give some examples there would be interesting?
2: Oh, um, well, there's, there's a lot of, I think, of uh, uh, the whole reason why I, try to prepare so much uh, in terms of, you know, studying all these great businesses, investors, and all that kind of stuff is so I can uh, mute or not like literally mute, but like turn down a lot of these biases. Uh, Cause I think the human mind has these biases, these shortcuts because it's just an evolutionary way that should kind of work out. So, for instance, you know, me being out in the jungle and then I see, like, this huge, uh, you know, tiger in front of me, you know, like, evolutionary, like, I should run from that situation. And that's just a good thing to do. But when you're faced with the financial version of that, you know, you're, you're out and Mr. Market is coming up at you with a gun. That would be, you know, like you see your stock go down 80%. The evolutionary, you should run from that situation. You should sell and you should run. Uh, but I think with the more pre- preparation that one does, uh, the better the pattern recognition, the better you're just prepared to see, you know, this situation as different than how your brain perceives it. Like I said, if you see Mr. Mark coming at you with a gun, well, that's you know how most people would see it. but having the right tools and thoughts and knowledge and vicarious experience, you might see that differently. and so while I instinctually felt like a dunce when I saw a you know anytime that I see a stock fall down, but when I have so much conviction in something, I still have to see it in a, a different form. Uh, and that would be, you know, seeing more of an opportunity out of it than an actual uh you know, risk or horrible situation. So I, I think that is been one of the reason, the ways that I've been able to get around a lot of my uh biases in terms of investing and you know like anchoring uh you know just seeing that your stock's gone down a ridiculous amount uh, and just trying to find that equanimity so just being able to see each situation as it is instead of as what most people think it is so most people think that roller coaster is horrible and it's but it it can be either horrible or it can just be an exhilarating experience. It's just really how you perceive it, and I think that preparation goes a long way in helping one uh navigate that in a a better uh non biased way
1: and I guess also it helps helps if you're not managing money for others as you as you did but do you think it would have been easier if you if you had only invested your own money?
2: Uh that's a very good question. Um I th- I still think I would have felt like a dunce. Uh, <laughs> uh but I I think when you're managing other people <laughs> it's just it's more magnified. Compounds. <laughs> oh yeah, uh, by by a lot and <laughs> especially if it's people that you, well I think some people who you might be close with could uh, overlook some of it because they might know <clears throat> what you're you're capable of in, in based on their experience with you and so i i think i had that benefit i think if you're managing other people's money who don't know what you don't know you as as well i think that's that's what would be probably the hardest because not only do they you're then now you're faced with you, can they trust me uh, they might not know me as well enough. Um, those people are generally gonna, you know, get out at the worst times because they don't know you. Um, they don't know what you're capable of. <clears throat> so yeah, I think it's much more difficult with with other people's money. I'm glad, you know, I probably, I'm I'm glad that I didn't manage more than I did.
1: No, it's crazy when you hear those studies about. I mean, Peter Lynch with his stunning record, and then when you hear about the investors in the fund. They right. didn't. They didn't prosper as as much, unfortunately.
2: Yeah, it's it comes comes down to conviction you have, into to whoever's running the show, whether it be <clears throat> somebody who's managing your money, or conviction you have in the the, the company that you're investing in. Uh, and so, majority of people who don't have the preparation <clears throat> who who don't have the mindset, uh, they're gonna generally not get the best results even out of great opportunities uh, but I think the people who've put in all of that work all of that wood shedding they they tend to get uh, above average uh, results out of even great situations or they they even might be able to turn lemons into lemonade uh, so even taking extracting quite a bit of value from bad situations uh, so yeah that's what I think about that
1: so again big congratulations to that to that investment and, and also that you showed that i mean how the theory could be put in practice
2: yeah thank thanks and i i just think that i just want to disclaim like while while i've done well with this company i probably you know i might not be able to find another one like this but i think the best use of my time and i think you know, I'm I'm just trying to be humble and like understand the actual situation. Uh, that's why I've you know gone gone into what I think is uh, lower risk, longer duration, better return opportunities. You know, just becoming the intelligent fanatic myself uh, in terms of operating my own business uh, because I think there's there's so many investors and there's so many smart people. And it's like well, it's just a pretty competitive. You know, you might find your niche in microcaps, whatever, and you could do well. Uh, and you might have your own style, and you know. But I, I, I just, I'm, I'm looking for those one, one foot bars to step over, and like literally here, like my, my area, and like what I'm doing. You know, it's, it's kind of like child's play. Uh, and I, I say that, but I'm still always trying to, you know, improve. You know, just as in case, you know, somebody comes in and you know, tries to destroy, but I think I'm I'm setting myself up for, uh, you know, the best results for me. Uh, And it's just something, you know, other people could potentially do, you know, they might be an investor, or they might be, you know, that operator might be a better investor, or that investor might be even a better operator, or maybe just based on the certain circumstances uh, around them. So I just, I hope that other people... To see that there are so many opportunities that might even be a better cost opportunity for for you uh, than what where you might be playing you know and it could be a division of investments or it, it can just be you know just in a totally different field
0: all right so coming back a bit to the characteristics of these intelligent fanatics I was a bit curious like reading, Uh, like Kelleher's mother, for example, taught him the respect for everyone. And, and there's other examples as well with Hank Rowan. And like, how, how are you thinking like the EQ versus the IQ, how important role that is? That would be interesting.
2: That's a very good, good question. Uh, it's definitely less IQ, uh, more EQ in terms of understanding yourself. And one one thing that I think is important to talk about is style. And so when, when I say style, I think anybody who wants to get great results in whatever they do, they they have their own style. And so when I when I say style, you know like Warren Buffett. Like he's he's got his own style. He's a straight shooter, great communicator, simple. He has his own way of operating. And I think a lot of people want to imitate and copy that, which is good. And you get to learn a lot of important topics by doing that. But with any artist, they learn from the best. They imitate. And then they get to a point where they find themselves. And they find that internal voice. And they meld all these different influences. And I think of it like a big pod of gumbo where you throw in all these great influences as ingredients, and then you get to a point where you just start stirring it together. And then you take a scoop out of it and you get a really unique uh, version of all of those influences, which is yourself or your own style. And that really separates the the greats from the non-greats. So in terms of you know, what, what are some of the intelligent fanatic characteristics? Well, I just think that there are so many different types. I think as long as you look at greatness, whether it be, you know, just business operators or investors or musicians or artists, there's so much to learn from everybody. You know, there. so I, I wouldn't look at Henry Ford and say, OK, well, I'm going to emulate him in totality. Cause he was, you know, against Jews. No, I, that's not a good, so everybody has their own flaws, but I think you just take all the good pieces. So, you know, like with Herb Kelleher, you know, him talking to his mom and like really teaching him how to respect people and be a good person uh, and how Southwest, you know, their way of treating uh, employees, treating customers and how uh, the company treats employees, you know, it's, kind of a transitive algebra equation where you treat one and then the one will treat the other because so a is b and b is c so a equals c so if we can take that from them and then with john h patterson from national cash register he wasn't the nicest guy ever uh tom watson who became the founder of ibm was a worker of uh, ncr uh, and there's one point when John Patterson got so mad at him that he you know had his desk out outside and it's just like there's or like uh Steve Jobs you know parking his Mercedes AMG or whatever in one of the handicap spots that's like there's so many you know bad parts of all these individuals and there's so many different good parts and it's really hard to just Simplify uh, all of these traits and characteristics down to an absolute, Uh, and I think that again, going back to mosaic, there are so many good details uh, and how some people might operate, and that's they operate with their own style that's unique to them and can work for them. But what works for somebody else usually doesn't work for you, uh, especially if you're not being true to yourself and so i think that with me i've always tried to take the positive uh, good quality attributes that i find interesting and then i tried to take all of the ones mix them up and then create my own type of unique operating or investing kind of philosophy um, and then be able to utilize that in real life and i think that so that's the style component of it and so I know everybody wants to hear, you know, what's the great, great thing? You know, what are some of the characteristics? I can give you a couple because uh, I know everybody wants to hear them. But it's just a great leader who shows all of the characteristics of a great leader. That being, you know, high integrity, you know, going above and beyond the call of duty for their people, um, creating that culture. So that's very important. And then it's the the underlying culture that's getting all of the team members to work together. It's literally it's, it could be as simple as that, but I think there are so many different ways to achieve that. So much gray area. Uh, and I think that's where somebody can see and you know pick the different great qualities of others and then meld them into their own style and then be able to create something new and unique that works for them. Uh, so I think it's you know just literally as simple as as that, and it's it's been extremely helpful for me in terms of music, in terms of investing, in terms of operating a business, and I think it's I think that's one of the you know w- ways that you know you, you the greats that's how they did it, and if you really want to become great at you know whatever field, I think it's the most efficient way possible. So emulate. Uh, A lot of the great masters, take all the good from them, mix them up, find out your own unique stuff, and then just give it to people. Provide the value that you can where you can, and I think people will just start knocking down their door just to find you, Uh, and I've seen that with my my business. Just go above and beyond, provide great value at a good cost, uh, and people will just look for you, and it's great results. Attract people, uh, and they just want to be partnered with the you know people who treat them the best.
1: It's really interesting. Um, I had a question regarding. I mean, as investors, many investors are quite. I mean, ger- general in their approach, they don't they don't focus on a specific industry or, or sector, but but they go broad. Um, what What's your view on? I mean, investors going into really specific niches i'm I'm thinking about the fanatics they often they often have an intense focus on a specific uh, industry of course
2: any any great business usually starts really teeny tiny very narrow and then over time they expand yeah it's and i think anything any great individual uh, they have their niche and they have like i said they have their style they have the place where they operate and they're the best at it and over time, especially with the businesses, it's that business's ability to start great, start small, and then be able to uh, kind of clone itself in other uh, similar areas and just be able to keep up with that scaling. I think that's the, the best you know, way to, to look at it.
0: All right, um, and also coming back a bit to to the culture, as we're talking about there in the in the books, there are several examples of how important the communication is. Yep. But now during the last year, it's really been challenging for many companies, uh, people working from home, and you had some example where they were so early in the startup phase that they couldn't even have anything separating the desks. Everyone sat together uh, on BA on um, bet, but like, how do you think that the COVID situation has impact and what's the long-term view of this in terms of culture uh, when people are not working together?
2: I, I, I don't know if I have too much of a, an opinion on it, but I think human beings are social. I think that human beings, the good ones, are not good as in good, but the ones who can achieve some interesting results they're able to take advantage of, you know, challenging situations. And I think that, uh, I don't think that will really affect, you know, a lot of the great businesses. I you haven't think it, seen they'll, any they'll, examples. Yeah, they'll, so. they'll just adapt. They'll adapt better than anybody else.
0: Yeah, probably. And they also have, most of them are decentralized. In, right. So they're quite spread out already and might be even managing it better than other companies. Yeah. yeah.
2: Yeah, I I would say I would definitely agree with that statement. Yeah, they the the greater the better companies, the ones that are, you know, more decentralized, so they're going to be more localized, so it's going to be a bit easier to uh navigate a situation where people aren't able to uh, you know, be in close contact in a more centralized fashion.
0: Yeah, that's true. So so when looking for these companies, these intelligent fanatics out there, like technology is playing a bigger role in everything we do. There's uh, robots on the stock market, and there's even like emotional AI and so such things now. Do you ever think that the technology can, like, try to identify these kind of characteristics and have some kind I, of competitive advantage there?
2: That's a wonderful question. Uh, I think the human mind hasn't even been t- tapped to its fullest potential. I think that. Uh, the AI stuff is useful in many different ways. I don't think that the AI can overcome the human mind in you know the next couple you know the short term, medium term. I think people will start to realize that we we've been shortchanging ourselves in terms of how you know what potential we can attain with what we're already given. Uh, and so I think we'll. My personal view is that we'll actually start to utilize the AI to help uh, us understand how to use our own potential instead of overcome. Um, Then again, there will probably be companies that will come around that will try to be that crutch. You know, we're using internet more as a crutch these days. But I, I think the people who will excel, I should say. Who knows what's going to happen to the world as as a whole, but or what technology might have a hold on those people. But I think the people who do exceptionally well uh, in terms of you know whatever field they're they're in, they're going to be able to adapt to whatever situation. So if AI is doing pretty well, I think the uh, people who really excel are going to be able to you know just turn their own potential up in terms of their their brain power and what they're able to 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 do and i think it's because i think the human mind you know the subconscious that supercomputer that we all have but we don't really tap into much and we might see a glimpse of you know what it can actually create you know with these, these aha moments uh i i think that we really could you know come a long way in utilizing it. And it's, it's just a, you know, a phenomenal thing that the greats tend to utilize the best. So, you know, for instance, I'm, I'm talking about, uh, people, you know, if you're talking about Einstein or Buffett or any of these people, they're generally having more aha moments than everybody else, uh, or the people who create, uh, some pretty stunning things they're they're able to tune in to what matters most in their brain uh, than the most people can and they can adapt
0: yeah do, do you think that like the, the ones that we know today are like people recognize as intelligent fanatics even if they might not think in those terms do you think they are still underestimated by the public because you talk about micro caps being people don't see them and you can find them early but the big ones where people kind of, Jeff Bezos or those. Like, do you think they are still underestimated?
2: I think it's once once people see the results, once you see Jeff Bezos now, you're you, people. Everybody knows that you know he's he's capable of a lot because just see what he's done. I think it's a lot of the people who are the dark horses that are you know younger that are haven't put up those great numbers yet. Uh, they're the ones that are, you know, nobody knows about because uh, they haven't been on a commercial or, you know, Forbes, you know, billion dollar list, whatever. Uh, they haven't had the time to, to demonstrate, so nobody will believe them. And I think that's the the interesting phenomena. Uh, you know, if you're an investor or you're somebody who's trying to be uh, a great, you know, master at whatever field you're in, there's going to be you know, 10, 15 years where nobody knows who you are. Uh, Absolutely nobody. And you could scream from from the rooftops, you know, great, great, you know, insights and all that kind of stuff. And nobody really listens because they, and, you know, there's good kind of bias for people. It's like we're trying to filter out a lot of noise. But I think the people who really understand how to become great in the time and necessary effort to do that you know something phenomenal they generally you know attract each other and they're around people who create some interesting results because again they're just looking for somebody who's similar to them so i think the people who really put in the time effort and really understand things you know the the future masters they'll they'll generally uh, attract towards each other and they'll they'll look for themselves and somebody who is you know their peer who hasn't done anything really phenomenal quite yet. Uh, and then they either are able to, you know, in isolation you separately be able to create something uh, great or they, they generally share information with each other and they create something, you know, in tandem that can be quite great. Cause they're just, you know, sharing great insights with each other learning from each other. And it's usually the people who are humble that learn as much as they can from everything you know like from nature even because that's probably one of the best teachers out there uh, they're they're able to just dance around everybody else who's just uh, kind of riding by the seat of the pants so so that that's how i so it's i think there's a funny little uh, anecdote that i'll share so there's great uh, jazz tr- trumpetist miles davis uh and he's Oh gosh. Like one of the top, he has like the top selling jazz album. Uh, You say Miles Davis to anybody and who likes jazz. Of course they know who he is. Uh, Funny thing he said, and he, he played with like the absolute best Charlie Parker, John Coltrane. He was with every one of the great musicians when he started. And then over time he developed into his own style and he helped mentor a lot of the greatest uh, next generation jazz musicians and he said it doesn't matter how much he he played and how much respect he had within his niche which is jazz music he said it's once he was on a commercial for i think a honda commercial uh, like in the late 80s uh, you know after he's created some of the best music uh, and extremely successful for a jazz musician he said it's like thirty seconds of that, and he he would walk down the street, and everybody knew who he was. And he said that what kind of you know weird situation is that he's become like the best jazz musician over decades. Nobody, practically nobody, knows about him, and then he you know is literally on a commercial for a few few seconds, and then everybody knows who he is. So it's just an interesting uh, thing to think about in terms of somebody who's actually at the top of their field uh, and who has had many decades of experience and showing results. And then it's just literally, you know, a happenstance couple seconds with tons of distribution, that being, you know, TV sets. And then literally everybody knows you. So I think that's uh, in terms of who, who's now uh, uh, considered somebody great uh, based on, You know where they've been talked about on media uh, and whatever results they've been able to generate, and then you know the younger next generation. You know it's going to be a lot harder. It's like you have to know people, you have to embody all the and you know things that you think is going to be the next great thing, and then just take it from there.
1: So, Sean, this has been a fascinating conversation. Thank you so much. Um, This being a book uh, podcast, we of course want to know if you have any book recommendations.
2: Oh wow! So I I have some music books, and this is this should be good for you know a lot of individuals because I I think purist trying to become more pure is a uh, recipe for disaster. So I I have a little metaphor goes like this: so if you think like gold, pure gold. You know, it's wonderful, it's valuable, but it's not durable one bit, right? You can, it's very malleable and it doesn't last. So that's, you know, there's a reason why jewelry isn't made out of pure gold. It's usually made out of, you know, a combination between gold, copper, and whatever else. So that's a couple. So if you get a couple elements mixed together, it's a little bit more durable. But if you get uh, like a high entropy alloy, which is a mix between like five or more elements those are some of the strongest most durable most ductile you know the best uh, in terms of efficiency and weight and all that kind of stuff so i think a lot of people if they can meld a lot of different ideas fields and interests into one you're going to be so much better off Uh, and so I have music book and uh, recommendations, ones that have been very helpful for me, not only understanding myself in music, but also uh, within business and investing. There's Herbie Hancock. He has a book, autobiography that he he wrote. I uh, can't remember the name of it off the top of my head, but that has been very uh, influential for me. And then there's one last book. Uh, it's called... Uh, what is it? Victor Wooten, who's the one of the top uh, bass players, uh, called the Music Lesson, and it's a weird kind of book. The way it's told, you know, it's told from perspective of like a young musician trying to find his way, uh, and then he comes into contact with this master and. he he has to piece together all of the things that make like a great musician. I think it's the same exact thing in terms of becoming, uh, you know, great at any, any field. And I think it's just a very insightful uh, read. So I think that's, that's another great one. I have a bunch of other ones that have been helpful for me, but I, that's all the time I have today. <laughs>
0: Perfect. Thank you so much, and thank you for letting us uh, stand a bit on your shoulders.
2: And I'm I'm really uh, thankful and you know appreciative. I'm first first guest on your podcast. Thank you.
0: <laughs> thank you, Sean. Take care. Thank you for listening to Investing by the Books, a podcast by RedEye. You can follow us on Twitter at IB underscore RedEye and email us at ib.podcast at To improve the podcast, we really appreciate your feedback, so please rate and review us. Notice that the content in this podcast is not and shall not be construed as investment advice. This information is meant to be informative and for general purposes only. For full disclaimer, visit redeye.se. For the editing of this podcast, we thank Jon Hintze and for the graphic design, Jesper Viking. I'm your host, Eddie Palmgen, and until next time, I sincerely wish you the best of luck on your journey through life and investing.